Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. During Christmas, during Christmas time, I woke up with that verse on my mind. Yes, you've been here for a couple weeks. Notice, I wake up and I, I, I hear that verse. Those living in darkness will see a great light. You know, that's not really that unusual to think of that verse at Christmas time, is it? But it still, it was so strong. I, I went ahead and looked it up, read it. You know, it was actually prophesied by Isaiah. Uh, 700 years before it was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 4. And the thing that was interesting to me, because you tend to read over stuff sometimes, right? That wasn't really about Jesus' birth. What happened that fulfilled that scripture was Jesus moved from Nazareth, where he was brought up, to Capernaum, where he lived when he was uh, involved in his public ministry. And so it just got me thinking. Jesus just moved from Nazareth to Capernaum, and it fulfilled this 700-year-old prophecy that those living in darkness would see a great light. So I got to thinking, what if Jesus would move to Knoxville? <clears throat> what do we say? Those living in East Tennessee would have seen a great light. You just got to thinking about what that would involve if Jesus moved here. But you know, from in the mind of God, Jesus did move to Knoxville because you're here. Because he wants to shine his light through you in the same way that he did through Jesus. And for some reason, in God's mind and in his plan, this is actually even better than just having Jesus here as one person. It's to take his people, his church, and give them the Holy Spirit and shine through it. So we can say, when we're fulfilling our thing, what Rinkin was saying, when we bear fruit, we bring God glory. When our prayers get answered, God gets the glory. When we do things that we can't do because God does them through us, God gets the glory. And wherever we happen to be, they see a great light. Amen? That's good stuff. Because it's you. You know, all my life I've heard, um, I've heard uh, stories about revival, right? Either the, the great revivals of times past, the great awakenings and the things that have happened, or the prophecy about revivals that are coming, you know? God's going to one day do this. I've heard a lot of preaching on what we need for revival. We need to pray for revival, to cry out for revival. And I like all of that stuff. I'm not, I'm not picking on any of it. But the truth is, the Bible doesn't really say a whole lot about revival. What it does say is, I'll baptize you with my Holy Spirit. And you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Yeah. So look around. We're it. <laughs> you are God's great, great end time secret weapon for revival. If revival is going to happen, it's going to happen through us. He's going to use ordinary people. He's going to give us... He's given us the Holy Spirit. He gives ordinary people the Holy Spirit and through them does what only He can do. It's, it's exciting when God is working in your life. And I know God is working in this church and I know God is working in your lives as individuals. What we want to do is we don't want to be the ones watching that happen. Because I do believe, I do believe, like, you know, the prophecy of the great end time revival, if you've heard, you know, that was, that was um, Smith Wigglesworth who prophesied that years ago. I, I don't doubt that. I know that God wants to harvest of souls before we wrap this thing up. And so I do expect these things that some of these people have predicted or prophesied. But what we want to do is we want to be the people right in the middle of it, right? We don't want to be standing on the sidelines wondering what's happening, you know? If, if, if God doesn't if Jesus doesn't come back for, you know, another hundred years or something, I want my kids to have your book sitting on their bookshelf next to the Smith Wigglesworth book, you know? 
not the book you wrote, but the book of your life, what you did, what you accomplished. You know, when they go back and write about you and say, boy, how did they do that? Well, I don't know, an ordinary person just yielded to an extraordinary God, and here you go. And I really like that, what you said about, um, you know, I thought God would use my, what, how did you say that, my greatness? But he ends up using your brokenness sometimes because it shows God, it shows you who God is. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. I like that. Well, last week, a very quick review. I spoke about um, Israel after the Exodus. Remember, they went through the Red Sea and they're out wandering in the wilderness. And in the, in the end of the book of Exodus, they start building this, this tent, this tabernacle. There's these specific, exacting dimensions and the material they used and the wood they used and the furniture. And it was so specific. And then in the very end of the book of Exodus, the glory of God comes and He rests on the tabernacle. And I asked the question, you know, we know from the New Testament for sure that God does not live in temples made with hands. Says it straight up. God does not live in temples made with hands. And we even know from reading the book of Exodus that that glory cloud was following them around the desert before he came into the tabernacle. So I asked the question, why did God commit himself to a physical location that, that this would be the place where they would recognize his presence and worship him in Israel's history? And the answer is twofold. First of all, God's presence with Israel was an advanced um, signal about his claim on the whole world. Doesn't the Bible say that uh, the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God like the waters cover the sea? See, we make a mistake sometimes if we think that the Old Testament is just about Israel because it was always about the nations. When he called Abraham and said, through your family I'm going to deal with the problem of sin that came with Adam, it was his, he said, all nations, all nations will be blessed in you. So it's always been about the whole world. Secondly, the physical tabernacle and later the temple, they were pointing to Jesus. Because we know, we read last Sunday, how the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. He tabernacled among us. And remember what made, what made the people so mad was Jesus was out there doing things that you should have gone to the temple to do, right? He's out there forgiving sins. He's healing people. He's making them right with God. He's out there, some rogue rabbi out there on the street doing temple business. It wasn't right. He's healing people on Sabbath day for crying out loud. Stop it. <laughs> Why was he doing that? Because the temple and the tabernacle were pointing to Jesus. Now that Jesus was here, the presence of God is on him. The, tab the tabernacle, the temple, was redundant. It was irrelevant. And so, go with me. We're going to pick up uh, with the story of um, the conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman. Do we have any verses? Are you able to put any verses up on the screen? Sorry, guys. We, we have a couple people out this week, and they know how to run the new software. And the rest of us, we can run it if they'd have loaded it, but <laughs> I didn't get them to them in time to load. So, we'll just follow, follow me along. Follow along with me in your, in your Bible. If you'll go to John chapter 4, verse 20. Uh, Jesus is in a conversation with a woman of Samaria. The disciples had gone into town to buy food, and Jesus is there by the well. And uh, so he starts this conversation with her. And throughout the conversation, she eventually asks him about an ongoing dispute that the Samaritans had with the, um, with the uh, is Israelites, with the Jews. And she says, uh, see, because at that time they believed that God had to be worshipped in a physical place, a specific location. So she asked him, our fathers worshipped here on this mountain. 
And you people, that is the Jews, say in Jerusalem is the place where you need to worship God. Right? Why Jerusalem? It's the place of the temple. That was their holy place. That's John 4.20. Go with me to verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Verse 23, but, everybody say but. but. An hour is coming, and now is. Say, and now is. And now is. When the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. And so I asked a question last week. The temple worship, was it spiritual? And that's the reaction I got last week too. <laughs> We're worshiping a spiritual God, but but they're they're like like my dad was saying. Uh, they were doing physical things. They were obeying commands. They took a physical sacrifice, put it on a physical altar, lit a physical fire to it in obedience to a supernatural God. But what they were doing was physical. It didn't come out of their spirit. It came out of obedience. Right? I asked the question then, and it got even more difficult. Was it truth? That one's always harder to answer because, well, God told them to do that. God didn't lie to them. They were obeying God. But in the Greek, the idea of truth, the opposite of truth, is not necessarily a falsehood, but something hidden. So when they were worshiping and going through all the motions, they were doing worshiping something that they didn't understand. The real meaning behind it was hidden. So it wasn't a lie versus the truth. It was something hidden versus something disclosed. So in Jesus now, he wants us... The Father is seeking for worshipers who will worship with a full understanding of what Jesus did and what he came to do. It's spirit and in truth. But a time is coming, and now is. Now is. It's here now. Everything changes with Jesus. Now, I want to talk to you about this word, but. It's kind of an interesting word. I actually looked it up in the dictionary. Jay, I even looked it up in the Greek for you just because... I wanted to see what it meant, but uh, basically, it just means that if I'm using a sentence and I say the word but, it just means no matter what I said before, you can forget about it because I'm going to say something else now. <laughs> so, you know, just imagine you invite a friend to come and help you, you know, move something at your house, and you say, hey, can you come over this weekend and help me? And he's like, you know, I, I sure, I'm free, I like you, I, I don't have anything to do, in fact, I'm, I'm kind of bored, but... <laughs> is he going to help you? <laughs> so it really doesn't matter what he said before, you're not going to get help, right? Or if a guy, you know, asks a girl out for a date or something, you know, like, and, and I heard you're supposed to start with asking questions that they say yes to, you know, like, um, do you like food? Do you eat? Yes. Are you going to eat Friday? Yes. Would you like to go out and eat with me Friday? Yeah. And she says, well, you know, I really like you. I've known you for a long time. Liked your family. I know them, you know. I like your car. I like your hair. I think you're cute, whatever. But, is he going to get the date? It doesn't really matter what she said. Something changes with the word, but. But now you can even make it stronger. If you, take, if you add the word now to it and make a phrase, but now, that actually gets even stronger. It means that something used to be true, but it's not true anymore. But now. Got it? But now. So like, I used to live um, on the ocean, but now, 
fill in the blank. I live in the mountains, or I don't live in the ocean, or whatever. I used to have a sports car, but now I have two kids, and I have a van. But now it's always different. It's always something change, something major changes. Uh, I, I used to be able to touch my toes, but now I can't find them. <laughs> Uh, I used to be indecisive, but now I'm not sure what I am. <laughs> I used to worship God in Jerusalem, but now I worship Him in spirit and in truth. Everything changes with the but now. So let's just take a quick look at a couple of verses. Uh, go to 1 Peter 2.25. I'll give you a minute to get there for those of you who want to flip. I actually like flipping pages and marking in my Bible. I'm, the screens are great. The screens are great. But, hey, look, we have, how did you guys do that? You're awesome. Come on, give me a hand clap. You guys, now I can really rock and roll through this. You can write down the references. 1 Peter 2.25. That is if they're on 1 Peter 2.25. We're not quite there yet. 1 Peter 2.25. Look at how, look at how the, the, the phrase, but now, describes what happened to us when we came to Jesus. 1 Peter 2.25. For you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Everything changes with a but now. Romans 6, chapter 20. I'm going to read, or 6, chapter 6, verse 20. I'm going to read verse 20, and then I'm going to skip to verse 22. It says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. So you see a big but now. You were slaves of sin, but now you are free. Now you are a slave of righteousness. Now things have changed. Come on, a change is a good thing when you're a slave of sin, right? If you're a slave of sin, you're living in darkness, you desperately need a but now moment. Ephesians 5, chapter 5, verse 8. For you are formerly darkness... But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I'm going to quote a song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Jesus says, but a time is coming, and now is. But a time is coming when now is when those who worship the Father will worship in spirit and in truth. See, when Jesus came, everything changed. The reason everything changed is because Jesus brought and initiated a new covenant. If you'll go with me to Luke 22, should have just read this this week, Luke chapter 22, verse 20. This is at the Last Supper, right before Jesus was crucified, and he says, and in the same way, Luke says, he took the cup, and after they had eaten, and he said, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant of my blood. He was initiating the new covenant right there. <clears throat> now, if there is a new covenant, what does that imply? It implies there is an old covenant, right? So, if there's two covenants now, there's a new one and an old one, which one do you think is better? It's got to be the new. 
And which one do you think we are a part of today? Amen. The new. And if you're not, which one would you want to be a part of today? The new. The new covenant is better. Now let's look at Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. Now the book of Hebrews, the whole book really is dealing with and comparing and contrasting the Old Testament system, which was uh, mediated by Moses, with uh, the New Testament, which is mediated by Jesus. Hebrews chapter 8, starting at verse 6, it says, you have it up there? No? Okay. Maybe we applauded just a little too soon, huh? <laughs> it says, it starts off with, but now. There's a word. But now, he, that is Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. So he's just saying that the ministry of Jesus is more excellent than the ministry of Moses. And the covenant that Jesus brings is a better covenant than the one that Moses had. And it has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Which meant, if the first one was perfect, we wouldn't have needed a new one. We wouldn't have needed an update. We wouldn't have needed a new one. If you just drop down to verse 13 in Hebrews 8, it says, When he said a new covenant... He has made the first one obsolete. And whatever is becoming obsolete and is growing old is ready to disappear. So as far as we're concerned, when we come to Jesus, we are a part of the new covenant. And the old covenant, as far as we're concerned, is obsolete. It's outdated. It's like updating your computer and there's certain software you just can't load on there anymore. It just doesn't work in your new system. I've had some old, you know, i got an old game from... A, I can't remember when I got it, but it runs, I think, on Windows 95. <laughs> I don't get to play that game anymore. I wish I had a Windows 95 computer just for one game. I'm not a big gamer. That's the last time I actually played a video game. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it just doesn't work on the new system. And there are things in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant that just do not work in you because you are in the new system. You're a new creation, a new person. So we don't have to honor holy places or worship at temples, right? We don't have to earn favor with God through keeping of the law. We don't have to say, who will ascend to heaven and bring Jesus down? And we don't have to look to God to speak through us through a priest or a prophet. Why? Because we worship Him anywhere in spirit and in truth. We can't earn what He's already given for us for free. He's already showed favor to us. He's already promised that He would never leave us or abandon us. And we can hear His voice ourselves because he says my sheep hear my voice that's why I like to take a moment when we begin our service together and actually just acknowledge that his presence is among us we're not begging his presence to come because his presence is here because he promised me at least me that he wouldn't leave me or forsake me but I know he promised you that too and when we come together the kingdom is expressed among us in a special way and we just recognize and we acknowledge and we thank him for his presence with us we need to understand the covenant we are living in, if it's going to benefit us at all. And what we need to do is we need to become new covenant-minded. We need to have a New Testament mindset, not an Old Testament mindset. I just want to take a few minutes here and tell you four things that Jesus brought with the New Testament, with the New Covenant, rather, in the New Testament. <coughs> in the Old Testament, they were always looking for God to act. In the New Testament, we recognize that God has already acted in Jesus. 
In the Old Covenant, the thinking in the Old Covenant says, you know, one day I'll get healed. In the New Covenant, it says, by His stripes I'm already healed because Jesus already acted. The Old Covenant thinking says, let's pray the glory down. New Covenant thinking says, I received the glory when He baptized me in the Holy Spirit. What we need to do is stir ourselves up and recognize what we've already got. Old Covenant thinking says, if we cry out long enough, then God will hear us and answer us. But New Covenant thinking says, He's already heard Jesus. And He's already spoken to me. He's already blessed me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Those don't, they don't mix very well. You know, we end up looking like, well, we're praying for glory to come, but he's already here, and, and we just need to step into the full, uh, full expression of the new covenant and uh, just let him loose to flow in our midst and do what he wants to do. We need to decide which one we're living in and commit to that. So three things, or four things, I think I said. A new temple. I said this uh, already. Jesus made the temple obsolete because Jesus now carried the glory. But it also says that you are the temple. And you can read different verses in the, in the Bible, and, it's, and in, some of them say you, as in plural, as in we all together are the temple of God. And others seem to indicate that you, personally, in your physical body, you carry God's presence. You carry His Spirit. You are a temple for the Holy Spirit. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. This is the only verse I'm going to read on this. If you want to know a little bit more, go back and listen to uh, last Wednesday as we explored it a little bit more. But 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will dwell among them. I will walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. That's reality. That's what God has done. He's not over there in a building somewhere in some other town. He's right here among us. He is our God. We are His people. He dwells in us. He walks among us. He does what He does in our lives what we couldn't do by ourselves. Remember that. Remember this. That same spirit that invaded that tabernacle with all the glory clouds and all that and then the, uh, then the temple... And he came in and priests couldn't stand to minister. And that same spirit that came on Jesus with that voice from heaven that says, This is my son whom I love. That same spirit that invaded the church on Pentecost with all the fire. That is the same spirit that indwells you. Very same spirit. Let's think on that for a few minutes. It's okay. You can run around the room if you want to. You don't have any pay. Go for it. It's all right. We don't have a lot of room, but we can, we can make room. New temple. New covenant, new temple. A new covenant, a new priesthood. Okay? The old priesthood was the Levites. They had a bunch of them. But Jesus is the one eternal high priest of the new covenant. In the old, co old covenant, the priest offered up sacrifices year after year after year because they could never change a person's heart. So what happened is because their hearts weren't changed and they were continuously offering up sacrifices for sin, it just made them even more aware of their sin. Has anybody ever experienced that in life? I'm sorry again. I'm sorry again. I'm, and, and the more you repent, it just makes you more aware that you keep doing it wrong, right? 
But Jesus is the one who can actually change a heart and cleanse the conscience from sin. Let's look at uh, let's look at this in Hebrews. I've got a lot of Hebrews verses today because, like I said, Hebrews is dealing with uh, the whole book is really a comparison in many ways between the two covenants. Hebrews chapter seven. I'm going to pick it up in verse twenty-three. And the former priests, that's the ones I mentioned, the Levites, on the one hand, they existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. That just means that, you know, as the temple uh, sacrifices went on generation after generation, a priest would get old and die, so they had to have replacements, right? So the the lineage of, of Levi, their family, were the priests. And so they needed many priests because they didn't live forever. But he, that is Jesus, on the other hand, because he does live forever, he abides forever, holds the priesthood permanently. Hence also he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. You hear how it describes him separated from sinners uh, undefiled. See, the problem with the priests was they had to go offer sacrifices for their own sins first and then offer sins for the people and they had to do it over and over and over and over, year after year after year. But Jesus one time comes and he's separated already. He doesn't have to offer for his own sins. He comes and makes one sacrifice for us for all time. He says, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. Go down to verse 27. Who does not need daily like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Once for all people, for all time, one sacrifice, and then he lives forever to make it real in your life. That's good. New covenant, new priesthood. But it goes a little farther, because you're in Christ. You're in his family. So you are a nation of priests. New creations are a new race, a new people, and you are kings and priests. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Listen to this. For once you were not a people, but now... You are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Everything changes with the but now. Everything changes with the new covenant. Jesus brought a new covenant. New covenant, new priesthood. Number three, new covenant, new nature. Okay, I, I should have told you to keep your finger in Hebrews before we went to Peter. But uh, if you're not, if you didn't, go back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. It says, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come. That's what we've been saying. It's only a shadow of what was coming. And not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually make perfect those who draw near. That's a lot of words. So I looked it up in the contemporary English version. And I really like how it says it. It's so clean and simple. It says, the law of Moses is like a shadow of the good things to come. The shadow isn't the good things themselves. Because it cannot free people from sin. 
by the sacrifices offered year after year after year. What they were doing had no power to set people free from the sin. But Jesus does. Jesus makes you a new creation. What's it say, 2 Corinthians 5.17? If anyone is in Christ, it's a new creation. New creation, new nature. Hebrews um, 8 and 10 says, uh, yeah, if you're in 10, just flip back a page or two in your Bible. Eight, Hebrews 8 verse 10 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord. Listen, this is the new covenant he's describing. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them upon their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's a little bit like what my dad said. It wasn't that they were, you're ordered to go and do these things. He puts his laws in your mind and in your heart and causes you. Doesn't the, uh, I think it's in Philippians, it says uh, that, uh, that he works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure, right? He works in our new hearts, our new nature. That's what it is. But now, everything changed. We're not sitting here just trying to keep rules and laws, but we're working together with him. He's working through us. He's, if we yield to him, he's expressing our, himself through us in our lives. The law could not change the heart or cleanse the mind. But through Jesus, God has given us a new nature. So, new covenant, new temple, new covenant, new priesthood, new covenant, new nature. The last one I'm going to talk about today, and I'm sure there's a lot more we could, we could think about, but uh, a new understanding of God. I'm going, to, I'm going to close with this. If you will go with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Let me get in Hebrews. Those little books in the end there, you flip two pages and you're in Titus. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago by the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways. What this is saying is God long ago spoke to Abraham, and to Moses, and to Isaiah, and to Jeremiah. He spoke to them in many different ways, many portions in many ways. In these last days has spoken to us in his Son. Okay, so what, what I want you to do in your mind, I want you to draw a line here like this. I want you to see Old Covenant, New Covenant. Maybe we should draw the line like this. Say, Old Covenant, New Covenant. That way we can make a list. We can work on stuff. Old Covenant, New Covenant. you got God speaking through prophets in these last days. He's spoken to us in Jesus. Okay, now what's so special about this is this. It goes on, he says, Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So Jesus will inherit everything. Jesus made everything. And he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. Do you see how in the old covenant with the law and the commandments and the prophets, it is not an exact representation of God's nature? Jesus is the exact representation of God's nature. Now God can let the world know what he is really like in his heart. See, the Old Testament, he could reveal something about what sin was. That was a very basic thing people needed to understand. Why are you spiritually dead? Because this is what sin is. Thou shalt not, don't do, you know, the, the rules, the law. It could teach them about something about God's justice and God's desire. And then they can predict and prophesy about covenants and things to come, but it cannot represent fully the nature and the character and the heart of God. Yet in the New Testament, in Jesus, God could fully represent His character and His nature. 
And Jesus comes along, and he, what? He starts healing everybody. He starts helping everybody. You can see his willingness to help and to heal and to love. Jesus comes along and he says, Our Father who art in heaven. What? I mean, he's like our Father? He reveals God as a loving Father who cares for the birds. He says he watches the sparrows. He's provided things. He takes care of them and feeds the birds. If he'll feed the birds, he'll take care of you. See, but if you spend all your time over here in the Old Testament, you're like, I didn't get it exactly right. I probably deserve this. <laughs> Whatever's going on. But in the New Testament, yeah, you've got a loving Father. He takes care of the birds. He'll take care of you. You can trust Him. Jesus showed us what God was like. Jesus was the exact representation of His nature. So new covenant, new understanding of who God is. The old covenant was for people who were not born again. They did not have that but now moment. They were working toward it, but they didn't have it. But now, new covenant, new worship, new temple, new priesthood, and new understanding of God the Father. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word and what Jesus did. We thank you for that but now moment that you've provided for us, Lord. But I ask that you take these truths that we've we've looked at today. I ask that you expand them in our hearts. Let them churn around inside us and let them come out in our lives, Lord. Let us, let us begin to walk even more fully in these things and come to a greater understanding of the love you have for us. We thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in our lives and in this church. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.